Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. We're going to be reading uh, chapter 11 through verses, uh, through, excuse me, chapter 12, verses 32. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will go and let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his, hand, out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You, will, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs that sh they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened, 
from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall, shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought, you, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened, and all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and, the two, and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. So the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among the people, my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Well, throughout the years, storytellers have tried to picture for us what true love is. And often what they have used to show true love is the concept of sacrifice. That's the greatest way to love someone. So there are plenty of examples to pick from, but think, for instance, of the character Anna in the Disney movie Frozen. So at the very end of the movie, Anna is in grave physical condition. Throughout the whole movie, her sister Elsa has been creating problems in the kingdom, and yet Anna has pursued her in love. But at the very end of the movie, when the turncoat Hans is about to kill Elsa, Anna jumps in front of his sword and spares her sister's life. If you'll remember, Elsa then embraces the frozen sculpture of Anna and says, you sacrificed yourself for me? The greatest act of love is self-sacrifice. Anna gave herself as a substitute in place of her sister. And as we continue on in our study of the book of Exodus this morning, we see that God loves his people just like that even far better. 
So Exodus is the story of God's people in Israel, uh, Israel in slavery to Egypt about 3,500 years ago. And over the course of the past few chapters, God, or Yahweh, the personal name he's revealed for himself, has been unleashing disastrous strikes on Egypt. So immediately preceding our text for the day, he has caused thick, palpable darkness to remain in Egypt for three whole days. And as we come to chapter 11 this morning, we see one final sign to come, one final blow from the sovereign hand of God. And yet, in the midst of all the carnage, we see in wonderful technicolor the sacrificial love of Yahweh for his people. So in the passage Megan just read for us, let's look at this text in two parts. The character of God and the sacrifice of God. So first, the character of God. Back in chapter 4, as Moses is preparing to return to Egypt, the Lord tells him he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. We looked at that last week. And he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And now after nine strikes on Egypt, from frogs to lice to hailstorms to locusts, God is about to bring this final promised hammer down on Pharaoh's head. Look there in chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. It's a horrific proclamation from Yahweh. Israel is his firstborn son. He's set Israel apart as his possession, and now he intends to strike down all the firstborn of Egypt's households in this final act of judgment. It's ironic to remember back to chapter 1, when a previous pharaoh had demanded the death of all Israelite boys. It's come full circle, has it not? The tables have turned. This tenth plague will decimate Egypt's firstborns and therefore Egypt's households, and this sign will be significantly different from the nine that have preceded it. It will be different in that God himself will execute it without mediation from Moses and Aaron. So if you think in the past, Moses and Aaron were always commanded to lift up a staff, and that was the symbol of authority. Now they're just going to simply warn and instruct and watch. Verse 6 of chapter 11, Yahweh says, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be. This final strike will be horrible, extremely devastating. As the cry of the Israelites went up to God in their slavery, now the air above Egypt will be filled with another cry. The cry of Israel's oppressors in anguish. There in verse 10, we see a summary of the entire narrative of the plagues. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So there you go. If you have missed the past couple weeks, that's the Cliff Notes version, right? Wonders have been done. Pharaoh has rejected God's command. The stalemate comes down to a final strike, this tenth plague. And if you look ahead to chapter 12, verse 29, everything happens exactly according to plan. The Lord strikes down all the firstborn of Egypt, every single one, 
we read that Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And church, as we come to the end of this part of Exodus, where we see this judgment of God raining down on Pharaoh and his people, we must remember and rehearse yet again what we've learned about God in this story as a whole. And that is that he is holy. He alone must be worshipped. Pharaoh was this so-called God of Egypt, but as we see down in verse 12 of chapter 12, what's God's judgment coming down on? All the gods of Egypt. He and he alone is the one true God. He is Yahweh. Think back to chapter 3, where Moses was confronted with the burning bush. This Yahweh is the one true God, and he is ferociously holy. As we've said over and over again, Pharaoh is coming head to head as the God of Egypt against the God of Israel. He's finding out that God is unlike any other God he's ever known. This one is powerful. This one is sovereign. This one will not tolerate rebellion. As Alec Matir writes in his commentary on Exodus, those who will not bow to God's word must bend to his judgment. These plagues have been like a display case at the front of a store of God's holiness. If you want to see what God's holiness is like, it's right here. It's on display. He is utterly other from us. In our frailty, we cannot grasp what this means. God is perfectly pure, perfectly mighty, perfectly true, perfectly good, perfectly beautiful. His holiness is the sum beauty of his attributes. And frankly, in light of that, we are undone. It's bad news for us. This book of Exodus so far has repeatedly shown us what it looks like for a holy God to relate to men and women. He's often merciful, but he never denies his holiness. So whether you've heard that many times, or this is brand new for you this morning, you must recognize that because God is creator and you are created, because God is holy and you're not, you must fear him. You must obey him, and none of us have. In our sin, we've done the very opposite of that. Sin is what we've done to deny God's authority in our lives. Every way we've determined that our way is better than his way has set us up against him as his enemy, and he crushes his enemies. He will be shown to be holy. That's the character of God. He cannot be matched. If he was anything less than this, he wouldn't be worth worshiping. And so what's going on in Egypt here is reflecting God's glory in judgment. And it's terrifying. But what about Israel? What about God's people? Will they also be in awe of God's holiness? Let's consider the sacrifice of God, which is what the bulk of this passage points us to. So that's the character of God, sacrifice of God. 
So in several other plagues, we've seen God set up this sort of distinction between Egypt and Israel, right? Between those who are definitely not his people and those who are his people. But the way he's going to show that distinction here in this final strike will be different. Look there in chapter 11, verse 7. So the firstborns of Egypt are going to be killed, but the Lord says, and I love how he says it, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And the bulk of the rest of this passage is given to detailed instruction as to how God's going to make this final distinction. Because in those other strikes, the distinction's been clear and it's been God-mandated, right? It's been God-executed. So there's hail in Egypt. There's no hail in Goshen, where the Israelites live. God has set up this distinction. Israel has had to do nothing. But here, God gives his people specific tasks, doesn't he? Instructions to make sure that this distinction is held. And these specific tasks are going to set them apart as holy to him. So as he prepares to deliver them out of this, this, this sort of exodus that we'll study more next week, Lord willing, and bring them to himself, he's showing them what kind of relationship they're going to have with him. This final plague will have a huge impact on the way Israel relates to Yahweh. So look at the beginning of chapter 12. God dives into the speech to Moses and Aaron that goes all the way to verse 20. Parts of the speech have to do with the immediate situation that Israel finds itself in. Other parts of the speech look ahead to what celebration will look like in the future as they remember this deliverance. But to sum it up, what's needed for Israel to respond in faith to Yahweh's command in this final strike is to find a substitute. There in verse 3 and following, households are to find a lamb. This lamb must be without blemish. It must be a male. It must be one year old. You see that in verse 5. They could also have been a goat. And on the night when God strikes the firstborn of Egypt, the Israelites are to take these lambs and kill them, verse 6. Kill them at twilight. They're to roast the lamb in fire picture of judgment and eat it together in haste to show that they're faithfully ready for God's promised deliverance but there in verse 7 they have more to do they must not forget to take the blood of the lamb and apply it to the doors of their homes the sides and the top marking themselves off as separate from Egypt consecrated to Yahweh and what will then be his response as he swoops into Egypt to execute his justice? Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is setting up the relationship between God and his people. And it's going to be a relationship defined in terms of redemption. Mercy, passing over. Church, this is a watershed moment in the history of Israel and indeed in the history of redemption. 
all throughout the rest of the Bible, all of the Old Testament and the New Testament, will look back to this moment as it shows in crystal clear clarity this merciful covenant relationship between God and his people. You see that there in verse 2, right? Of chapter 12. It's such an important event, it's going to redo their calendar. This will be the first month of the year for Israel. This will be a new beginning. This will show in even newer ways what their relationship with Yahweh is to be. There in verses 14 through 20, God expands on the Passover and shows how it's going to kick off a week of celebration in years to come. A celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This feast, along with Passover, will commemorate the deliverance of Israel from Egypt by the mighty hand of God. But then in verse 21, we're called back to the present. And we see Moses summoning the elders of Israel and giving them instructions that he's heard from God. He says there in verse 23, the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. It's life or death. Destruction is coming. But Israel is given this sign to set them apart, to spare them from God's judgment. You see how sovereign God is yet again in both justice and mercy. Look at all the I wills. I will pass through. I will strike all. I will execute. But then wait. I will see the blood. I will pass over. God in his infinite mercy shows Israel how to respond to his holiness in faith by finding a substitute. You think back to chapter 7 where blood was a symbol of judgment, right? As the entire river of the Nile was changed to blood, but now blood's going to be a symbol of rescue. The Egyptians will be struck down by God, but for Israel, a lamb will be struck down instead. I love how one commentator puts it. Every house in Egypt and in Israel would have something dead in it. But would it be a firstborn or a lamb? A final irreversible sacrifice would have to be made. It would be effective in turning away God's anger. It would spare Israel's life. And uh, perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian or you're new to the Bible and you're thinking, man, you Christians talk a lot about blood. You've even sung about it. And you'd be right. And you'd also be right, it's kind of gross. But understand that we don't think blood is all that important in and of itself. Blood is important because of what it represents. Blood means life. When blood is flowing, life is happening. And when blood is shed, life is taken away. The shedding of blood equals death. And what we see here is in order for Israel to be in good standing with their holy God, blood needs to be shed. Death needs to happen. A life needs to be taken. Why? 
because that's the only way for God's justice to be satisfied. Sin is serious because when the offended party is the holiest of holies, God himself, nothing but life itself is enough to pay for that sin. God is not some psychotic maniac. God is holy. And sin is serious. Now, sin isn't mentioned anywhere here in Exodus 12. What is seen is that God is holy and he sets people apart for his glory. But as the Old Testament continues, and even this very book of Exodus continues, we'll see that in order for God to delight in his people, in order for him to save his people, in order for them to be in relationship with him, something's going to have to happen to deal with their sin. And here the Israelites get a snapshot of what that's going to mean. It will mean sacrifice. It will mean something else paying for their sin. It will mean a substitute. And ultimately, it will mean and point to something far greater than any common lamb or system of sacrifice. Because think about it. If God would somehow in perpetuity continue to pass over sin and let it go because of the blood of some animal, sooner or later, that system would begin to break down. Sooner or later, God's justice would need to be sacrificed or satisfied by something more than just a mere lamb. At some point, God's people would need a perfect substitute who would both be able to bear the weight of sin and bear the weight of God's wrath against sin. Fast forward centuries after Exodus 12, you'll see that God's people are still celebrating the Passover right? And the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Thousands of years later, they're still rejoicing in the fact that God had passed over their ancestors in Egypt when he had struck down the firstborn. And so it's not a surprise when we come to the book of Luke, chapter 22 and verse 7, that we find a group of Jews planning for Passover meal. We read there, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. Last supper Jesus would share with his disciples was a Passover meal. And he was present not just as a participant. He was present as the lamb. Little did his disciples know that the Lamb of God in their midst would just a little while later be crucified, have his blood shed for them, bear God's judgment for them, bear God's strike so that they might be passed over. Just as we saw last week when darkness, palpable darkness, had descended on Egypt for three whole days before the death strike of God on the firstborn. So darkness would encircle the cross of Christ for three whole hours before the only begotten firstborn son of God would be struck dead by God's justice. The blood of that lamb would be the ultimate sign to spare God's people the judgment they deserve for sin. In Christ, 
God sees the signs of his people and yet passes over them. In Christ is God's justice fully and finally satisfied. In Christ do God's people see his judgment and experience none of it. In Christ they are saved. The Bible in the New Testament goes to great pains to connect Exodus 12 with the person and work of Jesus Christ. So 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter calls Jesus the lamb without blemish or spot. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul writes, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. In John chapter 19, which Peter Kay read for us earlier, the apostle John shows that in Jesus' crucifixion, not one of his bones was broken to fulfill the scripture. What scripture? few verses down in Exodus 12 that we'll look at next week, that this sacrificial Passover lamb had none of its bones broken. Church, Exodus 12 is the gospel. It's right here. It's almost like the Bible is written by this one sovereign author to tell us how we can be saved. And that's through a substitute. Our hearts must be adorned with the blood of a perfect unblemished lamb if we're ever to be accepted to a holy God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this blood sacrifice can be for you as well. If you will see your sin and what that sin deserves, if you will trust in Jesus and what he has done, you will be saved. You will be spared. You will be passed over. The judgment of God won't fall on you. Turn to him. Don't pass by this wonderful news. If you have questions about that, talk to me afterwards. Talk to someone you're sitting next to. Don't let the urgency of the moment wear off this afternoon. Turn to Christ. And, and Christian brothers and sisters, just imagine the judgment of God. Imagine hell. We get a glimpse of hell in these plagues, don't we? This great display of the dark foreboding of God's justice. Feel that horror. Hear the cries of Egypt. No mercy. Only justice. And then see all that no mercy hell poured out on the lamb instead of you. Placed on Jesus instead of you. Poured out on a substitute instead of you. Christian, listen, you will never, ever, ever have the judgment of God come crashing down on your shoulders. Your future is incredibly bright. like the Israelites in verse 27, we ought to bow our heads and worship. What wondrous love is this? That God's former enemies were brought into his family because of substitutionary sacrificial death in our place. Church, feast on the lamb this morning. Fill your soul with his atoning death in your place. Smell the roasting of the sacrifice. Rejoice in that victory in your stead. 
no matter what kind of sin you struggled with this past week, no matter how much you saw your relationships affected and damaged by that sin, no matter what kind of sinner you saw in the mirror this morning, if you're in Christ, you are no longer under God's judgment. You have been spared. You've been passed over. There's no judgment left for you. He took it all. Just soak that in. Soak it in. I love the words of Isaac Watts we sang earlier. In reflecting on this truth, he says, Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can never repay this debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. That's all I can do. Family, let's live for that Jesus. Because nothing else will do. No lesser pursuit will grip us like pursuing this king. He gave himself for us. Let's give ourselves for him and look forward to that marriage supper of the Lamb. When Passover, when the Lord's Supper, and all these little teasers of what's coming are fully and finally fulfilled. Let's pray that the day would come soon. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for just giving us yet an and thank you, Lord, that unlike that lamb, you rose again, and you're coming back. And when we come before your throne, we're going to see both a lion and a lamb. The great king of the universe who humbled himself to take on our sin. Lord, humble our hearts. Give us greater passion for Christ and greater desire to share this wonderful story with those lost and hurting around us. We ask that by your grace, you would give us a fresh view of the terribleness of our sin and the beauty of our Savior. We love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name.